What I'd like to talk about this evening is happiness. You might feel that you're ready for some of this after today. Sometimes I think in this path, just as in so many spiritual traditions, often so much is spoken about suffering and limitation and difficulty and problems and obstacles and demons and challenges, that it is easy for us to forget that this path is actually about happiness, actually about freedom. In my own training, I know at one point with my teacher, I spent, I think, a period of four months um, having teachings on the different varieties of hell realms that were possible to experience and all the different things that I could do in my life that would lead me to end up in one of these hell realms. But certainly after these many months of teachings on hell realms, I felt I could have written a book about hell realms in endless detail. But what I feel I really missed during those teachings not that they were irrelevant, but that teaching about happiness and how much it is really a core, really the essence of what we are doing here. People do come to meditation with really so many different motivations and different reasons that bring you here. Some people come out of crisis some out of curiosity, some in exploration. But there is something that is shared. Surely each one of us here is in some way seeking for a vehicle, looking to understand a way to discover greater depth of happiness in ourselves, in our lives. Sometimes it is just that simple. How to discover a greater depth of, of peace, of joy, of freedom in every area of our lives. This is our motivation often, whether it is conscious for us or whether it is not so conscious. But it seems that to find that quality of happiness or a depth of freedom, that first what happens when we sit and are alone with ourselves is that we seem to face the task of freeing our own hearts from fears and from self-centeredness, from confusion and from anger, from grief and from sorrow because that is often what we encounter when we first sit down. That is quite rare, actually, I would say, for someone to come on a retreat and in their first day have a totally blissful experience. It does happen. 
but it is rare. More often, instead, in our first meeting with ourselves, we seem to encounter so many obstacles. And I think sometimes when we do that, we may even come to accept that we have to postpone happiness or that somehow happiness has to be somehow set into the future until we have perhaps completed this more solemn undertaking of freeing ourselves of our own difficulties and confusions and angers. And I think sometimes when you look around at the faces of people on a retreat in the beginning, and you may have noticed yourself doing that today, that people at times look so serious and so solemn and at times so miserable even that it seems there may be that we share in some unspoken agreement that we will be miserable together now so that we can be happy together later. The Buddha once said that this path is the path of happiness which leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. I think it is helpful to remind ourselves that the peace and the happiness that the Buddha was speaking about was not a future peace and not a future happiness. Nor is it mentioned anywhere that suffering and pain and confusion is somehow a kind of spiritual stepping stone to peace and happiness. Nor is it mentioned anywhere that peace and happiness in this path and in our own lives is in any way dependent upon arranging and rearranging our worlds and our minds in such a way that there is no arising of the difficult or the unpleasant or the challenging. What kind of happiness do we look for? What kind and quality of happiness does this path actually speak about? It is not a complicated, arranged, or contrived kind of happiness. It is not the happiness of getting or perfecting. The happiness this path speaks about is a much simpler happiness and a much more accessible happiness. Not in the future, but the happiness that is accessible and available to us in the present. It is the happiness that we can find in simplicity and in sensitivity of being able to listen to a bird or to the wind and to feel no separation between ourselves and that sound. It is the happiness of, that we can find and discover in being alone and not feel in that aloneness that there is anything missing, anything incomplete, but to know in that aloneness a true sense of richness and wholeness.
It is the happiness we can find in living a life which is connected, a life of respect, of dignity and integrity, where the spirit and the freedom and integrity of the world around us, the life around us, our own spirit, is respected and cared for. It is the happiness we can find in letting go of our judgments, our ideas, our opinions, our beliefs, our self-images, our rejections, the happiness that is revealed to us in every moment that we let go of that kind of burden and those kinds of baggage that we can carry. It is a happiness that we can experience when our hearts and our minds are open in such a way that we can feel really touched, deeply touched by the most simple of sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings. It's the happiness of non-separateness, of non-division, This is the happiness that this path is about, the happiness of being present, the delight, the joy, and the love of being present. It has nothing to do with something that we have to work for and struggle for. It is available to us. It is accessible to us. It is present within us and for us. This quality of happiness that this path really speaks about is in so many ways quite alien to our more conditioned perceptions of happiness. We learn, I think, in our lives, and we also come to believe that happiness is something we have to work for. Or it's a kind of reward or that happiness is in some way something that we have to pay for. We also, I think, learn in a very distorted way that happiness has something to do with personal power. The power to avoid the unpleasant or the difficult or the challenging the power to achieve that which we consider to be pleasant, the power to rearrange our worlds and to redecorate our worlds and our minds according to our desires. Sometimes this is called happiness. The power to realize and fulfill our desires and ambitions. This too has come to be called happiness. And so I think this, in this kind of conditioning, happiness is always seen as a result, a result of personal power. I think, too, it happens that, unfortunately, carrying these very limited images of what happiness is, that its pursuit in our lives becomes a very complicated process. We pursue it, happiness with great earnestness, and yet sometimes it just seems so elusive 
and so very far away from us. It's a little story of a little fish. Excuse me, said a small ocean fish to an older fish. You are older and wiser than I. So can you tell me where to find this thing they call the ocean? I have looked everywhere, in the depths and in the shallows, near the shore and in the center. Nowhere can I find the ocean. The ocean, said the older fish, is this thing you are in now. Oh, this, said the disappointed fish. This is just water. And he swam away to search elsewhere. Sometimes the intensity, the earnestness that we may bring to a very complicated search for happiness, that that very intensity itself may blind us really to understanding the nature of happiness and also blind us to understanding the nature of unhappiness. Too often we equate unhappiness with there being something wrong. If I am unhappy, something is wrong. And in our culture, which stresses so much personal power, if something is wrong, then it seems that our responsibility is to fix it, to make it right. And again, our notions of what right is rests upon this whole idea of personal power. It's up to me. It's up to me to fix my world. It's up to me to fix my mind. It's up to me to fix what is wrong. It's a distorted sense of responsibility. Look what happens if we feel unhappy. You may have felt unhappy today. If you feel discontented, if we feel unfulfilled in our lives, almost immediately we begin to look for what is wrong. We may look in our world around us, our personal world of objects or people or roles or lifestyles, looking for the fault, looking for the imperfection. Or we may look inwardly. This tends to be what happens in retreats. We look inwardly, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with my thoughts? What is wrong with my feelings? What is wrong with my personality? What is wrong with my past history? What is wrong in my experience of this moment that is making me unhappy? What are we doing when we begin to look with what is wrong? Often we have a small, unconscious or unspoken program here. When we're looking for what is wrong, often our idea is, how am I going to fix it? How am I going to alter it? So I can reach at this arrival point that I call happiness. This, of course, doesn't imply in any way that everything in our world is wonderful, acceptable, glorious, and perfect, clearly. There can be much both outwardly and inwardly, which leads to pain, which leads to conflict, which leads to sorrow. 
And all of us need the courage and the care and the sensitivity to bring about the healing of anything which leads to sorrow and pain. What I would like us more to reflect upon is this notion that we so often carry that our well-being, our capacity to be, our happiness, our capacity for delight and joy is somehow dependent upon the objects outwardly and inwardly that we are in contact with. And in that word objects, I'm including mental states, thoughts, images, feelings. We are conditioned to believe, indeed, that our happiness and our well-being does rest upon, rely upon, depend upon the quality and the number of objects we are in contact with. And this myth is the myth that motivates so much of the busyness and so much of the restlessness in our lives. The restlessness to have, to become, to possess. The restlessness that makes consumption a mission. The restlessness that leads us to be endlessly taking upon ourselves the role of being an interior decorator in our lives. To fix this, to alter this, to manipulate this, to rearrange this. The restlessness that at times leads to this perpetual discontent. You know, how can I have the more promising, the more exhilarating, the more exciting, the more interesting experience? And when something ceases to offer us this in our lives, sometimes it feels simply okay to dismiss it, to reject it, to get rid of it. This is of no use to me. It is not making me happy. I do feel that many of us have actually learnt the fruitlessness of this lesson in our outer lives. Most of us have done this kind of search and possess routine. Most of us have done the consumption routine. Most of us have done the uh, chase and strive and gain and achieve routine a number of times and learnt simply that this really is not a cure for the discontented mind. It is not a cure, not a solution for the hungry or for the dissatisfied mind. And yet, this restlessness does re-arise. It does raise its head again in this journey. It does rear its head again in this journey. How often do we find ourselves kind of sitting in judgment inwardly? Sitting in the director's chair. Sitting in the place of evaluation. Alert to something going wrong. Alert to something being amiss. Alert to what is imperfect within ourselves. 
and looking for a state of rightness that we can call happiness. What is it that we judge and label as being wrong? Think of what you may today have judged or labeled as being wrong or unacceptable to you. What today have you labeled or judged as being a cause of unhappiness? Often it's things we can't accept about ourselves. Often it's things we can't make room in our hearts for about ourselves or others. Often it's things that we label as being unpleasant because somehow they are challenging or threatening to us. Sometimes what we've labeled as being wrong are the thoughts or the images or the feelings that somehow don't flatter our idea or our image of what we should be. Sometimes we label as wrong, anger, impatience, jealousy, greed, resentment, all of those things which we cannot welcome, we label as being wrong. Sometimes the list seems so endless and so does the task of uprooting the imperfect and uprooting the wrong. It is no wonder then in the beginning of retreats and often later on in retreats too, that we walk around as if we are carrying this great burden upon our shoulders. If things feel so heavy, there is so much work to do if we're going to be happy. It seems also that that happiness definitely must wait when every day seems to offer us some new and unwelcome revelation about what is wrong with ourselves, what is wrong with the world around us. And I think it can happen that we become so inclined to focusing upon the imperfect, to zeroing in with great earnestness about what we label as being wrong, that it feels like that's what meditation is. And as we get this idea, well, that's what meditation is. We fix things. We fix what's wrong. We kind of... Some people kind of regard meditation retreats sort of like you might regard taking your car in for a service, you know. You're kind of a tune-up and hope that, you know, we fix a few things and, you know, alter a few things and we'll go out as a more smoothly running human being. What is happening in this fix-it mentality? You know, pretty soon everything starts to bear the tinge of the imperfect. And what is our relationship to that? You know, there's that wonderful statement, when the only tool you possess is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) This happens. Sitting, waiting, waiting for something else to thump. Now, obviously, this wouldn't happen at all unless we had this kind of image inwardly of excellence, what excellence means to us, what spiritual excellence might mean to us. But this approach 
busyness, of rearrangement, of focusing on the imperfect, is directly conditioned by a very particular belief system. That I can only be happy when everything is perfect in my world. That I can only be perfect when all the content in my world is perfect. That my happiness is dependent upon this content being pleasing, flattering, and pleasant. Underneath that belief system about excellence, there's other, often another layer of myth that unless we're very busy doing all of this together, fixing and doing, that unless we really get into this, that, that we are somehow going to sink and be overwhelmed and swamped by the power of the imperfect and that will probably become a very unacceptable, unspiritual, and unlikable human being. This is not actually what happens when we're not doing all this fixing, but we'll talk about that later. Now, a wonderful example of this kind of fix-it mentality and the kind of knots we can get ourselves into over perfection is concentration. Now, some of you are new here and you haven't probably quite had enough time yet to tie yourself in this knot over concentration. Some of you have been here before and you know this knot very, very well. Why can't I pay attention? What's wrong with me? Am I doing it wrong? Is there some vital piece of information that was given out in that sitting I skipped? <laughs> How come other people look so concentrated and I'm not? Why am I always so spaced out? It will come if it hasn't happened yet. This not will come. Concentration is something that people struggle with to an extraordinary degree in meditation. Attention becomes such a struggle, it becomes a war zone, a battle. How to find this ideal attentiveness and concentration? Because you start with all these good intentions, I'm going to pay attention, you know, moment to moment wakefulness and all that. Moments later, you know, you find yourself drawn into dwelling and preoccupation and fantasy and the past. And again, the conclusion is, well, after I've got rid of all of this kind of business, after this has stopped, then I'm going to be attentive, then I'm going to be awake, then I'm going to be present, then I'm going to be concentrated, and I'll probably also go much deeper. And again, there is in, there's a very similar process that happens with this knot that we get ourselves in over attention as we get ourselves in a knot about happiness. Again, we assume that attention is somehow dependent upon our ability to subdue or to get rid of the difficult or the challenging or the unpleasant. And again, we can become so uptight about this, so uh, defensive of the moments of attention that we do get, grieving so strongly over the moments of attention that we lose, striving so intensely again after those moments. 
It is a very unnecessary kind of struggle. Attention is something that is most extraordinarily simple. Attention is the natural and the organic expression of the happy consciousness. Now I would like to just somewhat dispel this notion that happiness is a result of becoming attentive, of being present, of being awake. What I would like to suggest is happiness is a prerequisite to being awake. Now that doesn't mean that I expect everybody to come skipping into the meditation room (laughs) singing little ditties about how happy they are and how wonderful everything is. This is not the kind of happiness we are speaking about. We are talking about the willingness to be present, the contentment that comes when we are willing in an unconditional way to open our hearts and our minds to what each moment brings to us. Again, the Buddha once said, the consciousness, in the consciousness that is filled with happiness, attention, has found a foundation. It's very simple. This is the groundwork we need to do, not struggling and striving to pay attention. But what is the spirit of our effort? What is the quality of our attention? What is our willingness to open our hearts to what is, to be present? What is our willingness to embrace without judgment what each moment brings to us? It is fairly obvious to us all, I think, from our own life experience, that the happy consciousness, the consciousness that is happy, is naturally attentive. Think of that. Think of the moments in your life when you are truly happy in what you are doing, in what you are attending to. Think of the moment, those of you who who are parents, when you first held a newborn child, was your mind wandering? Think of the moment when you met someone that you truly cared for, that you felt a deep connection with. Were you worried about being distracted? Think of a moment in nature when you felt so deeply connected, and and they're not chattering, when there's just been profound sense of listening and seeing. You don't have to worry about how to be attentive, about how to be present. So what is that quality? What is that quality of connection? What is that quality of presence? What is that quality of seeing? Where there is this natural attentiveness that we don't have to work for. One aspect of it, of course, is when there's that quality of connectedness, that care, that natural attentiveness, one aspect of it is that very simply we don't have any desire to be anywhere else. You don't have any desire to be anywhere else but present with what is. The desire to move away from what is is the movement of the unhappy consciousness that has a certain agenda about being present, that has a certain expectation or even demand about being present. The consciousness that is often tied up in its ideas of what is right and what is wrong, 
what should be present, what shouldn't be present, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. Any one of those ideas is going to set us in motion away from what is. The, the all, and of course, all of those standards, all of those hierarchies are completely tied in to our belief that our well-being is somehow dependent upon the content and number of quality and quality of objects that we're in contact with. Unhappiness stirs movement. It stirs restlessness towards things and away from things. When there's happiness, there's a resting eagerly with contentment just with what is. Unhappiness carries this burden that somehow we are destined that we must modify, that our happiness is dependent upon a rearranging and modifying, so always in motion. When there's happiness, we know a great stillness and a delight in stillness. Reflect upon our experience today. What is the companion to busyness? What is the companion to restlessness? What is the companion to disliking or feeling negativity or avoiding what we experience in the moment? The companion is denial. Unhappiness is often in a state of denial, of rejection, of negation. So what happens? What happens when we have an agenda that leads us to deny what we are experiencing in this moment. We create a struggle. We create an opponent. We, had an, we have then an adversarial relationship and we believe that our well-being is somehow dependent on overwhelming or subduing this opponent that has been created through our judgment. Being aware of that. Our opponents are created through our judgments. So we struggle to make things different. Now why does that happen? Why, why do we create opponents? Why do we find ourselves engaged in this struggle inwardly? I'm not talking about outer struggle with people who we feel are our enemies or obstacles or whatever. I'm talking about this inner struggle. This inner battle we engage in when we are rejecting aspects of our own being, when we are rejecting our bodies, our thoughts, our feelings, our images. What is happening? Why do we do that? Why do we feel the need to do that? Often because we feel that I, who I am, can only be defined by the content of my consciousness. That if anger arises, I must be an angry person. That if greed arises, I must be a jealous person. That if restlessness arises, I must be a restless person. The movement of defining ourselves by the content of our consciousness. No wonder we want to get rid of it. I don't want to be this. I want to be different. I want to be better. I want to be perfect. I want to be liked. I want to be acceptable. 
to myself and to others. And to do that, it seems I've got to get rid of all this stuff. We have this adversarial relationship often in the present and also in the past. I mean, this is only seems happening to me in the present because what have happened to me in the past. What I would like to suggest is this moment, how we are in this moment and how we are responding to this very moment we are in. This is our next moment's personal history. If we are responding with avoidance, rejection, aversion, negation, we are creating a history for ourselves that we carry into the next moment. Is this a history? that we are creating, that will bring happiness, or that will bring freedom, or will it not instead just breed for us an endless series of struggles? To live in a way which features opponents is to live a life which is filled with struggle. I would like to read you something, the way of Chang Su, called The Empty Boat. If a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with their own skiff, even though they be a very bad-tempered person, they won't become very angry. But if they see a person in the other boat, they will shout at them to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, they will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, they would not be shouting and not angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. How would our lives be if we would stop shouting at ourselves? How would our lives be if we were able to empty our own boats? What would happen to greed, to fear, to anger, to resentment, if we ceased to regard them as opponents? Unhappiness is not a result of being in contact with the difficult or with the unpleasant. Happiness is not a result of getting rid of the difficult are the unpleasant. Unhappiness is the nature of separation. When we are separated from what we want, what we want to be experiencing, what we think we should be experiencing or should be having, we experience frustration and unhappiness and create opponents of what is. Separation from the present happens only through our own unwillingness to be present, to welcome and to open our hearts to what is, is to begin to end that separation. Meditation can reveal to us that much of the struggle we engage in is actually not necessary, that we can actually step out of this struggle that we can trust ourselves, we can trust our own wisdom. We can try, see what happens, 
when we don't believe in our judgments. See what happens when we let go of our ideas of what is acceptable and unacceptable. See what happens when we let go of our ideas about what is right and wrong. Just try it for a day. If that's too hard, try it for an hour. If that's too hard, try it just for a few minutes. See what happens when we let go of all of those ideas. It's a major renunciation. Sometimes people talk about breakthroughs in meditation, and, and I tend to be a little bit kind of, you know, skeptical about breakthroughs. But in some ways, there are many breakthroughs in meditation, and one of the biggest breakthroughs is breaking through our resistance to being with what is. There's a wonderful Zen line that says, When my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. (laughs) (laughs) Try it. Try it. Just let go of all of those ideas, all of those hierarchies, all of those dualities. We may have an agenda when we come to this retreat. We may have issues we want answered. We may have uh, experiences we've heard about we want to possess. We may have difficulties we want to solve. But please be aware of, of the difficulty of thinking in such a linear way that if I do this, I'll fix this. If I do this, I'll get an answer to this. Take the risk of stepping out of that linear way of thinking, of always looking forward to a result, a result in the next moment, the happiness in the next moment, the answer in the next moment. See what happens when we can just open our hearts and our minds to the dance that is unfolding for us in each moment. To surrender to that, to embrace it, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the difficult and the easy. Not to believe so strongly in our judgments is also not to define ourselves by our judgments, is not to be imprisoned by them. Something does happen when we can begin to cultivate this openness. We see how much struggle is let go of. We see how much Attentiveness comes so easily to us. Everything is a reminder to be awake. Everything is supporting our attentiveness. We see the changes that come, how through that willingness just to be present with what is, how there's a deeper contentment and equanimity and spaciousness and happiness. And we begin to experience in the midst of movement, in the midst of the challenging, in the midst of the difficult. It doesn't mean that everything stops. It doesn't mean that we have no more thoughts, no more feelings, no more, no more judgments ever arising, but they sure are less. They sure are less because so much of that busyness is propelled and compelled by our agendas. Much happens, much does happen in that openness. A greater receptivity, a learning from what each moment is bringing to us. A sense of being present and a quality of warmth. 
a warmth, a sense of being at home, that this moment is not something to be struggled with or endured or overcome, not something to profit from, but in some way this moment, to be present within it, is to be home, is to dissolve so much separation, is to know a quality of connectedness and oneness. The beginning of this path and the end of this path is about learning the skills and the art of unconditional welcome, because then we are present, then we are attentive, and within it there is great happiness, a great delight in being. May all beings live with an open heart. May all beings live with an open mind. May all beings live with happiness. If we have just a couple of minutes quietly together sitting and then we'll have a break.